Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. And it's a pleasure to have with me today, Professor Guevara Nubir. Hi, Guevara. Hi, Nabil. Thank you for inviting me. Of course, it's my pleasure. Guevara is a professor in the Corey College of Computer Science at Northeastern University, the executive director of cybersecurity programs and the PI of Northeastern University's NSA DHS Designate Center of Academic Excellence in Cybersecurity. He has many awards, almost too many for me to list, but I'm going to name just a few. He has received the U.S. National Science Foundation Career Award in 2005, the Google Faculty Research Award on Privacy in 2016, Northeastern University Excellence in Research and Creative Activity Award in 2018, the Best Paper Awards at ACM Conference on Security and Privacy in Wireless and Mobile Networks 2011 and 2018, and he was also the runner-up Best Paper in 2013. And he has also received the IEEE Conference on Communication and Network Security's Best Paper Award in 2016, among many other awards. He chaired the Technical Program Committee of several security conferences, including the ACM Conference on Security and Privacy in Wireless and Mobile Networks in 2015, and IEEE Conference on Communications and Network Security in 2015. He served on the editorial boards of ACM Transaction on Privacy and Security, IEEE Transactions on Mobile Computing, Elsevier Journal on Computer Network, and IEEE Transaction on Information Forensics and Security. Guevara holds a PhD in Computer Science from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. So Guevara, why don't we get started and why don't you tell us about how you got started with security? Thank you for the kind introduction, Nabil. I have to say I was embarrassed as you started introducing me. I was a bit embarrassed with the, you know. I was almost intimidated by the introduction. <laughs> it's more than, I think, uh, the reality. Just So how did I start with security? Maybe as in my early career as a student, I was in uh, programs that emphasized math and physics. And I always wanted to be, you know, engineer in the, maybe the French term of engineer. So, you know, solid foundations were always very interesting to me and building things were quite nice. So I went into engineering school in computer science after various kinds of competitions. And I have to say that I was a bit uh, depressed uh, that all the math I studied and all uh, these things, I was not really using them as much as I wanted. And uh, either security and wireless were two fields where I felt that on one hand, I mean, I could get everything I really liked, this, the you know, theoretical foundations and the mathematics and, you know, building systems uh, and also this, you know, competitive aspect that security always involves, you know, it involves both from a theoretical aspect, like a long-term kind of um, things, and also in terms of uh, short-term you know, uh, excitement about a challenge. So as I was uh, doing my PhD, I was uh, 
more and more interested in that area. I didn't really do my PhD in uh, wireless security, uh, but I was, uh, as an undergrad, is already interested in security and cryptography. So it's after my PhD that I moved uh, most of my focus to wireless security initially, and then wireless and mobile security. Is it fair to say that early on when you were um, going through university, when people referred to security, they naturally thought about applied cryptography more than anything else? I, uh, yes, I think so. Initially, you know, there was a crypto, you know, if you wanted to do security, you had to think about crypto and applied crypto as the main things. But then there's this whole thing about applied security, about building and deploying systems and all these things. As a student in the late 80s, early 90s, there are lots of things that, you know, that today uh, students you know, have to be very careful doing. But at the time, students would play with this, you know, when you, you, know, you have an account on the machine and you make sure that everything is secure and so on. So there was that applied sense of security uh, in academia, maybe what was more visible, uh, you know, if you wanted to go and carry security, crypto was the first thing and encryption, integrity protection and so on that came to mind. But, but I wouldn't say that, you know, that people did not realize that it is not only about crypto, that the whole system, you know, the weakest link of any system is the most important thing to, first, to secure first. And you touched upon something that we commonly find to be a theme that a lot of our guests have emphasized, which is the importance of understanding the basics and, and learning the foundations of computer science, which allows you to be better in being a security practitioner or a security professional. So uh, that seems to resonate uh, commonly with most of our guests that we have on the podcast. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I'm curious, however... Your, a lot of your focus has been on wireless security. So what is it about wireless security specifically that has intrigued you and has become such a major part of your career? So wireless without even security is a very interesting area because it involves a lot of mathematics, it involves physics and so on. And it is almost like magical, you know, the fact that you can convey information without any physical or at least visibly physical connection. So that was always very exciting. Then when you start looking about, uh, well, you know, securing these systems, you realize that from the early days, a lot of the security of these wireless systems, at least in the commercial words, is based on assumptions that are considered not to be adequate uh, in many areas like you, you know, well, it will be hard for an adversary to do this because it involves, you know, implementing, I don't know, GSM standard, a lot of, you know, documents. So uh, people cannot do it. So on one hand, it is intellectually interesting area, but practically most wireless systems were not really designed with security in mind because on one hand, you could say they're expensive to implement. So there's a cost to really embed any security into them. And then the feeling that, they're immune to security because the hurdles, you know, the, the barrier is too high for average people. But that has changed over the years as, you know, open source implementations of almost any standard became available you know, from open BTS for GSM to, you know, Wi-Fi or so. And like many, you know, fields, by the time there is complete awareness of the issues, it's kind of too late, you know, to change, to fix older things. And I think we've seen it the last few years that, you know, more and more these attacks are happening, really, or at least demonstrated to be feasible. 
and I could mention a few of them if there's an interest. Sure, yeah. And I think something a lot of people don't think about too is when a specific design flaw or vulnerability is found specifically in wireless technologies hardware, it's very challenging to go and implement a fix or change the hardware because they're so widely used. It takes a lot of time, money, and resources to actually go ahead and make those updates, which is what makes wireless even more challenging uh, to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, yes. An interesting concept, too, that, that has always fascinated me in particular is the wide usage of SMS, which stands for short message service, in today's world. Um, I believe originally SMS was never intended or even envisioned to be used the way it's used today. Can you share with us a little bit about the evolution of SMS, what it was really designed for, and what are really some of the dangers or challenges of using it, how we use it today? Yes, yeah, so SMS, in fact, uh, was a kind of side effect of uh, cellular systems. The fact that cellular systems uh, they operate over spectrum that's limited. So you will not have like a regular phone, the old phones where you have a line all the time, just can start communication anytime you want. There's no circuit. So you need to request a specific time frequency resource. So for that, there are control messages. Now, some of these control channels, when they're not being used for their, uh, you know, their primary purpose, they're just sitting there. So people thought, well, we could maybe use them to exchange communications. And I remember in the 90s, some, as SMS started becoming pervasive, a lot of, I think, young people were using it uh, much more than talking on the phone. And, you know, that trend never ended. Mm -hmm. So they, uh, some companies, in fact, were making more money charging for SMS than for their voice call. So, you know, 140 bytes. And as we know, Twitter emerged from that and so on. So it's really mm -hmm. fascinating to see that uh, it is something that the people would feel, well, you know, it's, it's a minor thing that you're going to add and then have a whole industry becoming based on it. Yet SMS, as probably know, there's no really fundamental security in it. So as it became more and more used, uh, various security issues would emerge with it. And I think some of these issues had to do with the cellular systems in the beginning. The only security that we, that really they cared about really in the beginning was that when you use their system, cellular system, that you are not really, uh, that you're paying for it. So there's a one-way authentication scheme. Uh, so whenever you're uh, receiving some communication information, you never know who it's really coming from. In the 2G system, the, that is GSM that introduced short messaging. I could also tell you a little bit how that evolved as 3G happened. But I think given that 2G is one-way authentication, meaning that the device using, let's say, SIM card proves its identity to the base stations, but they, they never really know that they're talking to a base station. So this was always known to be a security issue. But with OpenBTS, you know, this open source implementation of GSM, it became quite easy to do a managed middle attack. And I think what is really interesting here for cellular systems is that, let's say you have 20 megahertz of spectrum. And thinking again about just GSM, but these ideas generalized to 3G and uh, beyond, there are multiple bands of 200 kilohertz, but most of them are used for data. 
Very few, maybe one is using for, used for control. And even within that band in GSN, there are eight time slots. The frame is out of eight time slots. And one of them might, con might contain important information, something called a broadcast common control channel. This is a channel where you declare the identity of the network. Now, that lasts less than a millisecond. An adversary can just jam it, and then the network would disappear, and then provide a fake or rogue-based station, and then the device will authenticate to it. But because it's one-way authentication, they can't really tell they're connected to the rogue-based station. Now, you might have heard of all these. I mean, sometimes lots of systems are being sold that do these kinds of things, sometimes used by law enforcement and so on. So, so this one-way authentication makes it easier for an adversary to put a rock-based station and then send uh, you know, SMS messages to devices. 3G made things a bit better by making it two-way authentication, but it has its own issues. Mm -hmm. Well, before we move on to 3G, because I do want to understand from you what some of the flaws in how 3G was implemented is, I also find a lot of people have this preconceived assumptions around SMS that it's a protocol that guarantees delivery or that has certain quality of service threshold that isn't really true. And a simple example that I've given people is around the holiday season, when a lot of people are uh, using SMS to message their friends and wish them, you know, happy new year or happy holidays. Sometimes you get the same message multiple times, and sometimes your message never actually reaches the recipient. So I think there's also this false assumption around SMS that people think that if you send a message, it's guaranteed to be delivered, even though the protocol itself doesn't actually guarantee the message being delivered to the recipient. Yeah, I agree. I think maybe lots of the misconceptions about quality of service guarantees or even security, and there are lots of probably entities at fault uh, <laughs> in terms of uh, uh, you know, educating people. And, mm -hmm. and me, you know, your blog me, you know, is uh, raising awareness about various kinds of things. So educating people you know, to understand what kind of uh, service do they get, what kind of guarantees, what kind of security and privacy. Mm -hmm. And this is general. I mean, if you think about using any system, nobody reads the terms of use or terms of service. Nobody, you know, it's very hard to, you know, when you need to use a service, you need to use it at that moment. Yeah, I don't know anybody except one person who's ever read an end user license agreement <laughs> and said, I agree. <laughs> I don't really know too many people except for yeah. lawyers who would go and read those agreements. Yeah. So I, I definitely agree with you there. That's a big problem. So let's transition to 3G now, you know, as we've evolved technology, um, what are some design flaws or gaps from a security and privacy perspective within 3G? So 3G, you know, improved on 2G. Now already in 2G systems, there was an awareness about potential attacks. Communication was encrypted, although not really integration protected and so on, but there was a concern about tracking people. So that's why instead of having the IMSI, International Mobile Subscriber Identity, being sent all the time, ideally you want to have something called a temporary mobile subscriber identity being sent. When you say, I want to authenticate, you have to tell your identity. But in fact, just recently, people found that temporary identifier rarely changes. Sometimes it doesn't change in a month, which means that people could use it to track uh, someone. So 3G was aware of this. The standard documents describe that you know, there are various kinds of things that have to be provided, privacy and so on. But I think a lot of practical systems 
there's always this tension. I mean, in security, there's, you know, this may be, I would say, like two axis tension. There is a tension between theory and practice. Like, yes, you would like to provide some proofs. But then if it's not practical, then you have to engineer a solution that gives you the best security you might want. Then there is cost. If it's going to cost too much, you know, as long as it's reasonable, that's what people have been using. Things have been changing over the years now. If you design a system, you should think a little bit way ahead of time. Yeah, so, so these kind of tensions made it that uh, when you de- design a system, many times it is not designed with the best security in mind, unfortunately. And that was the case in 3G. So I'll give you a few examples. One of them had to do with this uh, man-in-the-middle attacks, one-way authentication. It is two-way authentication 3G in the sense that both sides have to prove their identities to each other. Uh, but 2G is still operational. So if you jam a 3G system, the phones will downgrade to communicate on 2G. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you still have the one-way authentication. You still have the same issues with 2G. That's one example. Another example was, I want to authenticate, but they want to design a system for authentication that is scalable and that is low cost in some sense. And there's only one kind of uh, small entity, you put it somewhere, you protect it. And that's the only thing you'd uh, worry about, let's say the authentication center, HLR and so on. That's where the key is. So how would you authenticate someone? There are basically you know, two ways. One, if you use symmetric crypto, you use symmetric crypto, it means that there's some secret that's in both the device, the SIM card, and this authentication center. And that's what was used, but you don't want to involve the authentication center all the time. If you don't want to involve him, what happens is that that authentication center, or HLR, or it had different names over time, computes a vector, no, it's called an authentication vector, like a, some data that can be used for, in the beginning, uh, let's say, the uh, base stations or the uh, later on the you know, B to authenticate the base stations to the device. So they're pre-computed, but to make sure they're not the same, they're just based on the sequence number. So you do some calculations, some keys based on some sequence number, and then you increment the sequence number, you do the same. Thing. And you send all of these things to these base stations, and that's what they will use. Now, the fact they use the sequence numbers resulted in security, various kinds of security issues, including the fact that you could track users. An alternative design could have been maybe involving more the authentication center or using asymmetric crypto. But the issue with asymmetric crypto is that, at least at the time, there's computation cost, and therefore there's cost of building these systems. And then there is also the issue that if you were to use it you know, on both sides, you need to provide that private key to different entities which would create insider attacks or you need to secure more systems and so on. So it was not selected. Now 5G, in fact, I'm skipping 4G, but 5G is making use of asymmetric crypto finally, but it's doing it in a very minimalistic way. In fact, it's only using it for the purpose that the mobile device, user equipment, will encrypt its identity with the public key of the server and send it. So it's hidden. Uh Why? Because in fact, in 3G and 4G and 2G, there was always that issue of tracking. Correct. That if someone pushes you and say, well, I don't really know, you have to tell me your identity, the mobile device will send this unique identifier Uh and send it in the clear. And even if it was sending this TMSI, it will remain there for a bit of time. So yes, unfortunately, cellular systems being expensive, uh, being also slow to improve, given all the constraints that they had, 
they gradually improve their security, but because also they have to be backward compatible in case you go a little bit outside, let's say, city, and then there's only 2G. Mm -hmm. So you have to use that, which means that someone could make the old 3G to 5G disappear and force you to get to 2G. Correct. Well, I, I have a different thought that I was thinking about is putting aside all of the security and privacy implications, it's really impressive how far we've come in terms of bandwidth and the, the rate at which we can transfer information and data wirelessly across the world today. And I remember my first access to internet was over a 28.8K modem which a lot of people can't even imagine given how slow that was, to now having access to like fiber optic based gigabit internet. And then here comes 5G, which has the potential to have bandwidth and speeds that are even faster than what I have available through my wired connection at home. Any thoughts that you have in terms of how you think the world is going to change once 5G is broadly available everywhere? So first, I agree with you. Uh, in fact, if maybe what I was saying earlier might sound uh, depressing or, or, you know, we have to worry, I feel, no, I am also quite positive. It's really impressive what has been achieved by the wireless and mobile community and security of the systems is getting better and better. And I think, like you're saying, in some sense, in my opinion, none of the people who pioneered the area of wireless and mobile systems they were dreaming that we could achieve something like this. Mm -hmm. I do not think so. I think this is really impressive. I remember in the period of the 2000 to 2000, maybe 10 or so, there was some kind of, you know, depression that people feeling, oh, this thing, you know, talk about this moving slowly. But maybe in many fields, sometimes think, you know, there's a vision and that vision may be ambitious or not, you know, calibrated to what might happen. And they go to this period of time where things don't really work out that well. It's slow. And then it comes back and you see, oh, it happened. And I think maybe AI is another area that you know, went into this cold period of time. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I can't really predict much. I think a lot of people who do predictions, it's very hard to predict what happened in the future. I want to mention maybe going back to security, there's one thing that is happening, which is what I call softwareization of wireless, in the sense that most of the standards now are implemented in software, which are opening security issues mm -hmm. that were of the domain of software. But now they're really, you know, like you mentioned earlier, that uh, lots of functionality being implemented hardware it used to be difficult to change. Now we are a little bit in between. It is implementing software, but it is still difficult to upgrade because you have to be compatible because, for instance, you use a spectrum. Everyone has to talk to each other and be compatible. So there are various kinds of issues, but things may be moving uh, faster. My personal feeling, just to say uh, some what might be perceived as contradicting is that you can say, well, you know, it's really moving very quickly. And some of it is due to the theory of communications, computer science, you know, there are all these kinds of things, information theory, coding theory, and so on. Moore's law, you know, being able to embed various kinds of things, all these algorithms that people talk about, we can put them into hardware. Uh, you know, some people might say, well, you know, it's uh, basically Moore's law. You can process, you know, wider bandwidth faster and so on. Mm -hmm. I think it is a combination of all of these things. And before even Apple, the iPhone and so on, in the early 2000s, there were all these, uh, I think at the time, digital, this uh, in the deck, the company, they had this, uh, this HC device or it's like small devices, or, and then uh, they would uh, 
had like sensors and all these kinds of things. So all these ideas, you know, slowly they interact with each other until they give us a system. So what would be the future made of? I don't really know, but clearly access to information, I mean, that has been achieved all the time. Okay, if I had to speculate a little bit, and maybe this might be creepy in some sense, what I'm going to say, but <laughs> if you think about it, our ability, you know, our way of interacting with the outside world, Let's say we have our eyes, they can probably, I don't know what's the limit, but maybe 4K, 5K, <laughs> where we, you know, we can do that easily with any 5G device. Right. Which means that we can probably, if you think about it, how much data do we really absorb, that can easily be stored, maybe for a lifetime of person. You could imagine wearing devices that records everything from the outside world, annotate them with the emotions and feeling and uh, and then go back in the future and ask questions to that and you know extend our or do we even get to a point where our memories get transcribed automatically and they become searchable so i can search keywords in my memory to go and find a specific time and place and and visuals of events in my life right absolutely i, I mean uh, you know i think at least i was thinking about it uh, also and i'm sure others you know, if we think about it as humans, okay, we remember things. And then we start using books and you will write notes and computers. And then as we get older, start forgetting things. But if you think about if you have, you know, I don't know, brain-computer interface, you try to remember something. You have few pieces of that. It's quite easy to get back to that exact moment, what you're seeing at that moment, and you get full clarity what you're trying to think about. Was it maybe a book? Well, you can get back to that same page because you've been recording it. And that will augment people's memory. I think, obviously, there are a lot of you know, ethical issues about is this something people would be comfortable with in the short term, long term, I mean, you know, the Google Glass uh, project and all these kind of things. And then all the security privacy issues that have to deal with that, especially that it is very hard to secure computer systems. I don't know if you watch a lot of uh, TV shows or, or shows on Netflix. But there's a show called Black Mirror, and I just looked it up. Uh, season one, episode three, there is a episode that really highlights some of these concerns around memory. Mm -hmm. the, the episode is called The Entire History of You. This is where humans actually end up recording every single moment of their life, and they can go back and, and review uh, any moment in history uh, from memory. So interesting. If you haven't seen it, you know, maybe you could check it out and, and see what you think. I, I didn't see it. One of my friends kept telling me, oh, you should watch these episodes. They're quite nice. So I will check it out. You know, a lot of these things will become possible. They will come with their own problems. My feeling is that humanity always managed to, to find some form of balance. <laughs> Not mm -hmm. always, but some balance. And it is very hard, I guess, to predict what's the right way, I would say, to deal with all, all these implications. As someone who's more excited about you know, doing things, <laughs> I uh, unfortunately don't spend too much time thinking about that aspect. But uh, And I believe someone, I think, there was someone who's doing experiment recording all his audio and video for a while. I mean, Interesting. Yeah, more than 10 years ago. I remember he started with this headset. I don't know if he's still doing it, but <laughs> it was clunky and so But today it's quite easy to do without even. Right, right. So do you have any thoughts around, you know, lately there's been a lot of talk about using mobile devices for location tracking of people. What are some of your thoughts, uh, especially around challenges with usage of mobile device and the various protocols that are out there to do location tracking? We had a few 
papers on this topic, both from the side of uh, wireless and mobile. So unfortunately, it remains quite easy to do. I'll give a few examples. In the context of wireless, I mentioned earlier, if you just listen to the protocol, you can find uh, in cellular world, you can find maybe TMSI, something like this. Wi-Fi, the MAC address was broadcast in the clear. Mm -hmm. In 2014, I think uh, Google and Apple started putting MAC address randomization, which was not perfect. But in fact, a few years earlier, we tried to publish results around this topic. And, you know, we didn't get uh, enough attention about it. It's only when Google and Apple decided, oh, this is an issue, then it became easier to claim that this is a really serious problem. So we found that you can fingerprint the RF signal. Let's say, you know, when you have a wireless card, when you start transmitting, it will have the, instead of transmitting some specific frequency, it might be a little bit off. The way your power amplifier starts has a signature. So you could track a device just based on that. So you don't even need to go to higher layers. There are other indicators that one can use to track. Uh, we recent this year, we showed that Bluetooth, you can extract through some convoluted way, non-trivial, but you can extract the BD address, which is equivalent to the MAC address of a Bluetooth device and track it. So in the wireless space from the outside, you could track all these devices. And the defenses that we have, they're not really you know, sufficient. And you could say, well, to be able to do that, you have to be quite close to the device. This is partially true because now as a lot of these you know, devices become software enabled, so even Wi-Fi, is a, there's some firmware that's running software. And there was in 2017, there's this project, Google Project Zero. They showed that you could send a frame to another, let's say, mobile phone. So you don't have to be connected to it or even on the same network. You send it to it mm -hmm. and then you could take over the Wi-Fi chipset and reprogram it to do whatever you want. Correct. And that was like a buffer overflow in something called TLV, uh, <laughs> which is a software thing. So yes. in the mobile space, as you know, applications uh, became very popular and you wanted to enable them, you give them access to a lot of things. And then quickly people realized, well, this could be used for malicious purposes. So permissions were put in place in different ways and so on. So last few years, we've shown that, in fact, there are a lot of interesting things that one can infer. You can have an app on your phone that doesn't get any permissions. So you feel safe with it. But in fact, sensors, and now things change a little bit, but sensors uh, don't need permissions, like accelerometer, gyroscope, and so on. And we could show that, in fact, you could use this uh, gyroscope information, accelerometer, compass, to find out where someone lives, where he's going, and so on, just by looking at the turns he's making gyroscope will report that. Mm -hmm. And if you take your city and make a graph out of it, like each intersection becoming vertex, and then every edge corresponds to intersection, and every vertex corresponds to a segment of the road, the sequence of turns, you try to find what is the maximum likelihood path on this graph that corresponds. So you can show that that is feasible. And now you know, there are some mitigations to that. So in the mobile space also, there are all these kind of uh, limitations as you try to provide more services to the app, more capabilities so they can provide more services to the users, you always end up with something called side channel attacks, something that an adversary could use to do something malicious. And it is not easy. I mean, as you know, security is this field where, I mean, yes, you can have a secure system, no services, nothing, they're not connected, you don't provide anything and it's perfect. But I mean, the purpose of most applications and systems is to provide a service. And what kind of service, what kind of uh, security guarantees can you hope for and so on, always constraints your design. And I think another thing is 
what might be considered to be acceptable to people at some moment of time might become in the future not acceptable as we understand the implications. You know, a long time ago, I think cordless phones, they were not really encrypted. And even maybe tracking people might have felt, you know, someone knows I'm, I live here, I go here, it was not really an issue. But as I think time passed, we started realizing that this is maybe a serious thing. I think one reason why we believe these are serious things is because if you imagine, let's say, you know, some entity, let's say company that can have access to information about people, let's say it has access to your phone, it knows everything that you do on your phone. But not only you, I mean, you could say, well, I don't really care. I don't have much to hide. But then when an entity has access to the phones of everyone, it can start understanding something that none of us knows about ourselves. Mm -hmm. I'll just give maybe a simple example. You could imagine that you find out a correlation between if the temperature increases by half a degree, people become more susceptible to this or disliking this aspect. Sure. You could imagine that you could start manipulating people. And you probably know about uh, all these Cambridge Analytica story, the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I feel that, uh, you know, I digress a bit, but uh, this uh, issue about, you know, tracking wireless mobile and uh, the, the fact that as we're providing more and more services, we face more and more privacy issues. And it is hard to predict what our expectations will be in the future. I remain a little bit positive that human beings have always been resourceful in going back and correcting and you know fixing uh, things. And I think we are more and more aware of security issues. So No, absolutely. I completely agree with you on that. So I like to switch tracks a little bit near the end of our conversation because I want to talk to you about non-security and non-work-related things. I do understand that you are a foodie and you love food just like I do. Um, there's a reason why, you know, I am a little obese uh, in my opinion. So can you tell us a little bit about what one of your favorite food item is and if there's anything in particular you truly enjoy cooking at home? Uh, yeah, I like food, but over time I feel <laughs> I have to be careful. Although I was very skinny. Yeah, I, you know, from the at least from the video, I don't see that you're obese. I think you're exaggerating, but uh, enjoying food, uh, yes, it is something important to me. I think maybe it has to do with memory and smell. I had good smell, so I, maybe that's what made me. So when I was a kid, I would, you know, my mother would be cooking, and I, I remember all these uh, things. So I, mm -hmm. despite uh, you know, living in different countries and so on, so I still always remember Moroccan food. So uh, something I like to cook, you know, Moroccan food has a lot of, you know, varieties and so on. But I think one that I routinely cook is this uh, chicken with preserved lemons and olives. I think this is maybe a unique Moroccan recipe. It has saffron, garlic. and What is the name of the dish? What is the Moroccan name? So there, I mean, it doesn't really have uh, like a, some kind of a short, but it's like a chicken with preserved lemon mm -hmm. and it has all these nice spices you know turmeric and ginger and uh, pepper and a little bit of uh, cinnamon saffron garlic uh, parsley some onions and so. there's some kind of sequence so i don't know if i really cook it the right way because uh, i mean uh, i think it's not too bad but uh, the challenge of reproducing recipes from memory and adjusting them you always feel that is a bit off and I never know it's because when I cook, then you get all these, uh, you know, smell and sense. So you don't really, mm -hmm. then by the time you eat it, it's a bit, uh, you've been conditioned. Uh, well, if someone else cooked it, <laughs> it tastes differently. 
I, I completely understand. Well, you're making me very hungry, but I think I'm going to selfishly invite myself over to have dinner with you one of these days once we get over this pandemic. And I will bring dessert and you bring this chicken dish and we can talk more about mobile security, wireless and all the things about technology. I would love to do that in person, hopefully, once we get past this uh, COVID situation. Absolutely. I would love to. And hopefully this situation will be behind us soon. Although, as you know, we're not out of it yet. Who knows? We'll wait and see. But uh, Guevara, thank you so much. This was absolutely wonderful and a pleasure uh, speaking with you. And I look forward to connecting with you in person. Thank you, Nabil. It was a pleasure talking to you and uh, best of luck with everything. Thank you. Take care. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.